Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi, and the theme of this episode is the noble art of pugilism. Although until about five minutes ago, I thought pugilism meant any fighting sport. I thought karate was pugilism. But I just looked it up and it turns out that pugilism specifically means boxing. Who knew? Probably everybody apart from me. So, as one of the features on today's programme is actually connected to wrestling, maybe the theme isn't pugilism after all. So, anyway, the theme of this episode is uh, blokes fighting each other on canvas floors inside uh, squares of rope called rings. But, pugilism or not, I have two fantastic guests for you in this episode. We kick off the show standing outside in the bitter cold, which is the natural habitat of my first guest, the excellently named Michael J. Buchanan Dunn. Mike will be telling me about a mysterious death that took place in Soho back in 1965, that of the much-loved celebrity, film star and former boxer, Freddie Mills. I'll then be joined by the author, broadcaster and cultural theorist, Ken Hollings, for our Soho film chat. We'll be talking about the classic Soho noir, Night in the City from 1950, in which two-bit hustler Harry Fabian attempts to muster into the London wrestling circuit, much to the displeasure of the criminal cartel that runs it. I'll be talking to Ken in the second half of the show, so please stick around for that. Conspiracy theorists, even in the days before the internet, had a field day with the death of Freddie Mills. Freddie had been a champion boxer in the 1940s and then in the 50s had moved into the world of entertainment and celebrity, becoming a film star, TV presenter and nightclub owner. It was at the back of his nightclub, the Freddie Mills night spot, that Freddie died in his car late one night in 1965 from a single gunshot wound. The coroner ruled that his death was a suicide, but his family and many others did not accept this decision, claiming instead that it was murder. In fact, a recent BBC documentary backed this up and claimed to have solved the mystery, pinning the blame on foreign gangsters. Michael J. Buchanan Dunn produces and presents the very popular Murder Mile podcast and runs guided walking tours of the same name around Soho. When I asked him if he'd come on the show to help unravel the Freddie Mills story, 
He suggested we meet up in a little street just off Charing Cross Road. I was, understandably, very nervous about going down a cold, dark alley in scary old Soho with a man who spends his whole life delving around in the minds of some of the most depraved killers in history. With my hands trembling and my knees knocking, I asked him where we were and, fearing the worst, why he had brought me here. We are in a little street called Gosselet's Yard. It's just off Charing Cross Road. And we're here because it's here on Sunday the 25th of July 1965 that Freddie Mills died. Freddie Mills was a boxer. That's about as much as I knew until I started looking into this. A good-looking chap. I think you described him in your podcast as having the face of a melted matinee idol or something. Who was he? How big a celebrity was he? How big a figure was he in the public imagination at the time? Uh, Freddie Mills was incredibly important. He wasn't particularly skilled as a boxer, but he could take a pounding. He was a clever man as well, so he started diversifying. He moved into television. As mentioned, he was quite handsome. He had charm, he had charisma, he was able to move into feature films, and he knew that his boxing career was over, TV career wouldn't last, so he diversified, moved into her property, and set up a nightclub. And one of his nightclubs was here, just off Goslett's Yard, uh, a place called Freddie Mills Nightspot. Goslett's Yard where we are now, I hope listeners can hear that it's quite noisy. There's, we're outside a pub called the Royal George, there's people outside smoking. In those days, it wasn't anything like that, was it? Could you explain uh, what it would have been like back in 1965? It was uh, a very small kind of dead end, just off Charing Cross Road, which is a very busy road, but as you pull onto Goslett's Yard, it was dark, there were no lights, it literally was a dead end, but it was a great place because it was at the back of Freddie Mills' night spot, his nightclub, cabaret and Chinese restaurant combined. And he could park up here, relax. He came here normally just to have a little snooze in his car before he went on at midnight to open up the cabaret. So tell me what happened that night. So that night he pulled in as per usual in Goslett's yard. He was going to be on stage at 12 o'clock to open up the cabaret. So he told the manager, wake me up at 10 to 12 so I can go on stage and introduce the cabaret. And that's all people knew. He was sitting in the back of his car, having a bit of a sleep. And then, at some point, he died under confusing and strange circumstances. I think this is where a lot of the mystery actually starts, because he was sitting in the back of his own car. He had a rifle in front of him, kind of facing upwards as if it was pointing towards the roof with the butt of the rifle on the uh, floor of the car. And he had a shot in his eye. The manager came out, saw Freddie in the back of the car. Now, obviously, he's sitting on the back seat. It's dark. The manager comes out, shakes Freddie and goes, Freddie, Freddie, wake up. Freddie doesn't react. So the manager goes back to the nightclub and speaks to Andy Ho, who was the owner of the nightclub. Andy comes out, does the same as well, shakes Freddie, goes, Freddie, Freddie, wake up. Can't get him to wake up. And what they start realising is, is he's got drool around his mouth, but they don't see it by that point, that he actually has been shot in the face. He's been shot in the eye. By this point they start to panic, they can't wake him up. Freddie's wife, Christine, and his stepson turn up as planned. They were going to meet Freddie there as well. They realise something is wrong. They don't quite know what has happened. They see the gun on the seat in front of them and they realise Freddie has been shot. This is serious. We have to call an ambulance. And initially it was decided by the police that it was suicide, but quite quickly a whole load of rumours began to swirl around because the slightly unusual things have been in the back of the seat and this odd kind of toy gun almost 
was that he was shot with. He was sitting with his upright, with his palms on his knees, all the kind of odd things. What I suggest is that we retire to a local pub where it's slightly warmer and he can run me through some of the theories. How does that sound? That sounds great. So we've come to a, actually a louder place now than we were before, but it is a pub, which is an improvement on a cold, dark street. So, Mike, you were telling me about Freddie and some of the strange circumstances surrounding his death, and a whole load of different rumours sprung up. People start to think that it wasn't suicide, it was actually murder or some kind of suicide pact or something. Do you want to could you run through a few of these quickly for me? Well, one of them was that they believed that the, the Cray twins had actually murdered him, uh, which is a bizarre theory because the Cray twins were boxers and they absolutely loved Freddie Mills. Freddie Mills was a big celebrity. They would come into his club, they would be entertained by him and they would absolutely adore to have their photo taken with Freddie Mills. In, in fact, Leonard Nipper-Reed who was the detective who actually collared the, the Cray twins in the end. He investigated and he said the Cray twins were definitely not involved. And the very, very strange one was that Freddie Mills was the Hammersmith Ripper, or Jack the Stripper. Could you quickly explain who Jack the Stripper was and why they thought that Freddie Mills was Jack the Stripper? So around the time of Freddie Mills' death, there were several naked ladies found in the River Thames over in Hammersmith. Now, at that point, they didn't know who Jack the Stripper was, but what the police said was that the suspect was a man in his 40s, he was an ex-boxer, and that he committed suicide that year. Now, obviously, Freddie had died that year, he was an ex-boxer. The press jumped all over this and said it must be Freddie Mills, but it wasn't. It was actually a guy called Mungo. He was a security guard working in the industrial estate over in Hammersmith. And looking in the police files, Freddie was never questioned, his car was never seen by the police. Um, he was definitely not involved. The idea that he was somehow wrapped up in Soho gangland protection rackets, that kind of thing, is there any manage to that? No, there's nothing there at all. It's, the reason that they picked on that is because obviously Chinatown is not too far away. Freddie Mills' night spot was not only a cabaret, it was also a Chinese restaurant. And uh, Freddie Mills' business partner, Andy Ho, obviously was a Chinese man. So they've tied it all together and they've said, there was uh, some kind of Chinese extortion going on. There wasn't, Freddie was a good businessman. Uh, he was very legal and above board. In fact, the only time he was taken to court was that Andy Ho and himself had put in a fruit machine and they hadn't got it licensed. That's the only time that he was ever taken to court. During those final few days, he was down to his last 300, 325 pounds, which is sounds a lot but he had enough money to survive him for about another week and then his business was going to collapse he would lose his house his wife and his kids would lose their home so he was in dire straits so you are definitely of the opinion that he did commit suicide despite the fact that his in his character as you've said many times he was a fighter and he always took the punches and came back for more that kind of thing you think that even so he he did shoot himself in the eye? Is that, what you're, is that what you're thinking? I think where the, the mystery comes from is that Freddie was found in the back of his car, but he was shot in the eye, which 
it's very strange when you look at it you would think why would he shoot himself in the eye and or if it was an assassination attempt or a hitman why would they shoot him in the eye with a strange gun with, with false bullets. You're absolutely right. Obviously, he knew people who would have guns uh, in Soho. He probably knew a couple of gangsters, ex-boxers, so he could have got a gun from them. But he didn't want people to know that he was depressed, that he needed to kill himself. So he went to Mary Robertson, who's an old friend of his, who ran uh, a fairground attraction in Battersea. He said to her, I'm doing a charity event. I'm going to dress up as a cowboy. Can I borrow a gun? She loaned him a gun that she had, a rifle used in a fairground. It was defective. That's why she loaned it to him. She knew it wouldn't work. While he was in her house, he stole two bullets. They weren't real bullets. They were clinker, which is basically, instead of an actual bullet head, it's uh, compacted charcoal, which is the kind of thing you'd fire at a target in a fairground. And it wouldn't go through the wood at the back, but it would impact and it would make a bit of a dent. And it would go through an eye into her brain. Absolutely. In fact, Freddie actually tried it out in his car. He loaded up the rifle, he fired it into the passenger side door, and it didn't penetrate the steel of the car, but it did, it made a really sizable dent. So he reloaded it. What they reckon is he put it towards his temple. He pulled the trigger. The hammer hadn't clicked. It hadn't come down to fire the bullet. So he pushed it to the left to have a look down to see what had gone wrong. The trigger clicked and the bullet or the clinker went into his eye, but it didn't kill him outright. And that's the thing, is that a lot of people do think that he died there and then, but he didn't. He was shot in the eye, the clinker went into the base of his brain, and although he was immobile, he couldn't move. He sat in his car for, they reckon, about an hour and a half. He wasn't dead, he was still alive. He just couldn't move, he couldn't react, he couldn't talk. It's really horrible and really sad. And another one of these theories that have come up is the idea that Freddie Mills was secretly gay or secretly bisexual and was possibly being blackmailed. What do you think about that theory? The reason this came about was because Freddie was good friends with a, a famous singer called Michael Holiday. He was a performer at Freddie Mills' night spot. He was, he was a big performer at the time and only really Freddie knew that he was a gay man. Didn't have a problem with that. But Michael Holiday was suffering with depression at the time. Freddie tried to help him out, tried to guide him through this. Unfortunately, after performing at Freddie Mills' night spot, uh, Michael committed suicide. Freddie was absolutely distraught about this. One of his closest friends had just committed suicide. He died. He, Freddie was so upset. And that's the problem is the press picked up on it and said, oh, well, they must be gay lovers. But they weren't gay lovers at all. Freddie was a committed family man. He's got children. And even Ronnie Cray, who was gay and who knew Michael Halliday and Freddie Mills, said, there's no way. Freddie was a man's man. We have to jump slightly ahead now because there's lots and lots of detail. If people want to get the detail, they can listen to your podcast. I think it's episode 40-something. It's the episode marked Who Killed Freddie Mills. And there'll be links to that in the show notes. If I may now inject an element of controversy, you are aware, I'm sure, of the BBC4 documentary that came out a couple of years ago. It seemed to claim to have solved the mystery. And the theory put forward by this programme was that the American mob, the Mafia, in the form of a guy called Mayor Lansky, wanted to move into Soho and set it up as a kind of mini Las Vegas. They had a man in London who was their conduit, a guy called Benny Huntman, and a couple of days before Freddie Mills was found dead, he went to Benny, desperate, 
and said, I need something like £2,500 to save the club. Benny Huntman refused to give him any money, and Freddie said, I'm going to go to Fleet Street, which was taken to be a threat because Freddie knew that Benny Huntman was working with Maylansky to get the Mafia into Soho. Benny Huntman then reported back that Freddie Mills was about to spill the beans on this plan. So Maylansky put out an order for him to be assassinated. I can tell the listener that you're wrinkling your face at that theory. I mean, firstly, why would you murder someone by shooting them in the, the eye? Secondly, why would you murder them and then try and make it look like a suicide? Thirdly, why would you murder them? <laughs> I'm sorry, it makes me laugh every time. Why would you murder them using a gun from a fairground, using a bullet that wasn't bullet but was made of charcoal? You wouldn't do that at all. You wouldn't murder anyone that way. This wasn't a murder. This was Freddie, a depressed man. If you break it down, Freddie was a fantastic... He was the light heavyweight world champion. He was a man at the top of his game. He was a film star, he was an actor, he was beloved by people. But by 1965, 15 years on, his star had waned. He wasn't important anymore, he got money problems. He was suffering with chronic headaches, depression. He'd just come off a bout of pneumonia. He was sitting in his car, he'd got 300 pounds left, enough to last about a week. And he knew that he would be better off dead. He loved his family but he needed them to survive to do well. Freddie committed suicide. Sadly, that's the truth. Thank you very much to Mike there for a fascinating evening telling me all about the lonely and very sad death of Freddie Mills. Despite my misgivings, it turns out that Mike is actually a very charming fellow indeed, and is almost certainly not a murderer of any kind. There'll be details of his guided tours, live shows, and the podcast at the end of the programme. And of course, they'll also be in the show notes for this episode at SohoBitesPodcast.com Actually, come to think of it, if I was a murderer, I'd pretend to be a very charming fellow too. My God, that was a close call. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. 1950's Night in the City was directed by Jules Dassin and was based on the 1938 novel by Gerald Kirsch. It follows the ups, downs and more downs of Harry Fabian, an American hustler or cheap spiv as one character refers to him, ducking and diving in London's post-war clubland. Night in the City. The night is tonight, tomorrow night, or any night. The city is London. When we first meet Harry, who's brilliantly played by Richard Widmark, he's running, pursued through the bomb-damaged streets around St Paul's by an unknown foe, and he continues to run for much of the film. He earns his daily crust by enticing gullible strangers 
into the Silver Fox Club just off St. Martin's Lane, where they are roundly fleeced by the club's owner, Phil Noceros, played by Francis L. Sullivan, and his wife, Helen, played by Googie Withers. Harry is always on the lookout for the next big chance, the one business opportunity, legit or otherwise, that will propel him into the big time. His long-suffering girlfriend, Mary, played by Jean Tierney, is approaching the end of her tether and wishes he would just pack it all in, while his employers at the club ridicule the very notion that Harry will amount to anything. The scheme that Harry has been waiting for lands in his lap one night, and he sets about putting his seemingly crazy plan to take over the promotion of professional wrestling throughout London into action. The problem is that the wrestling racket is already under the control of somebody else, the calmly menacing Christo, played by Herbert Lom, who doesn't take too kindly to an interloper attempting to grease his way in. My guest for this episode's movie chat is Ken Hollings, an author, broadcaster and cultural theorist. And although he's written extensively about film in the past, he'd never seen Night in the City until I sent him a copy. And I do like introducing people to great films for the first time. I asked him, now that he'd seen it, if he was rocketing about the Ken Hollings list of favourite films. It's on its way. It's definitely a film, I think, that repays repeated viewing. I, I don't think it immediately lays everything out for you um, because I think quite often it's a, it's a jumble of different elements, different genres, different approaches to what you might call the kind of criminal lowlife type narratives um, that were emerging um, after the Second World War, um, which actually I quite like. After a while, it, it actually begins to enrich the film. I think the first time you see it, you feel it's a little lacking focus, yeah. I mean, this is not about the performance. It's not about the cinematography, both of which are exemplary. It's actually just how all the bits hang together because you're not really given a lot of reaction time with the film because you are bang straight into it. I mean, it begins with the central character, Harry Fabian, on the run at night, very starkly lit, out of breath, perspiring. You never really find out who the um, pursuer is. It's just the latest person who's been dealing with this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You get the feeling that this is not the first time that this has happened. There's even a moment um, where he's running, where he, he he's wearing this very loud plaid suit. This is Richard Widmark um, at his most venal. I mean, he, Widmark's an amazing actor and this is still quite early in his career and I think they're still kind of figuring out what to do with him. So the kind of feral shark teeth version of Widmark is beginning to come out and he's wearing this this, this ridiculously loud Like suit. a zoot suit almost. It's like almost a, a post a, zoot suit. Yeah, it's a bit late for, it's a bit late for zoots but it's, it's um, I think it's significant that it's too big for him. Like mm. He actually does look as though he's swimming in it in the first few scenes and I think there is all the way through the movie the idea that he is metaphorically he is the little guy he's a little guy trying to make a big impression on the world to be a big success and there is a moment when he's when he's racing down a dark alleyway somewhere around the back of St Paul's in the in amongst the the bombed ruins and he has a carnation in his buttonhole and the carnation falls out and he actually does a kind of pivot pirouette to sort of scoop it up and put it back on as he's as he runs on uh, and it's, su it's such an interesting detail that he would sort of stop to pick up this slightly battered looking flower and put it back in his buttonhole yeah I mean his whole performance is full of those kind of little flourishes I mean his his Richard Widmark's performance is spectacular isn't it I think it's extraordinary um, I mean, by the end of the movie where he said, you know, I've been, I, I can't run anymore. I've been running all my life. I've been running and sweating. I mean, he has been running and sweating all the way through this film. He's unlike any of the other characters 
uh, in his world, which is very much a sort of low-life, bohemian, semi-criminal-type world. And what's really interesting is that everyone else has strong emotions. They have, all the characters are motivated, um, sometimes quite psychopathically. They do have strong feelings, but they're very good at masking them, filtering them, keeping them tamped down. You know, there, there, there's lots of characters that are burning with a kind of cold fury. Googie Withers in particular. Googie we'll Withers in particular. In oh, yes, an amazing performance. But Richard Widmark as, as, um, as Harry Fabian, everything's on the surface. He can't hide anything for a second. Um, he, it wouldn't even occur to him. He doesn't have the same kind of psychological breaks or filters that all these other characters have, who are sharks. I mean, everybody in this movie, except for one or two innocents on the, on the, on the periphery of its action, they're all hunter-killers of one kind or another, and they're all locked into some strange psychodramas of their own. Except him, you know... Harry just wants to be big. He wants to make it big. He wants everyone to sort of, you know, he wants everyone to throw a big parade for him. He wants the, the sense of being a big shot. In the UK version, I'm going to tease something we're going to talk about later. In the UK version, he is a kind of an innocent abroad, almost literally. I think he's actually, he's a con man and the only person he ever cons is himself. There's a scene quite early on where we see Harry at work and his work is basically touting for customers to the Silver Fox Club. Mm. And he uh, meets these three Americans and he's, he's got a network of people. He's got taxi drivers and doormen, doormen people yeah. like that. So he gets a little bit of information so he can just get into these people's conversation. And actually, all he does is get them to go to a club. Yeah. It's not like he's ripping them off. They go to the club and they have a great time, I assume. And there they get ripped and off. there they get ripped off, yeah. Perhaps, you know, but they're still going to enjoy themselves, you know. They'll pay five quid for a box of chocolates or whatever it is, you know. Mm. So I don't think he's doing anything particularly bad at any point, unlike everybody else. Should we talk about the power couple? Yes, you've, you've, um, you've, you've managed to get us to the Silver Fox. Yeah. Thanks to the agency of, of Harry, we're now going into the Silver Fox, which is this club in a passageway that looks as though it's off Covent Garden. Yeah, it's between St Martin's Lane and Covent Garden. It's right. that, little, that little run through there. Yeah. Um, which has a, a colourful uh, old lady selling flowers outside and a piano accordion. Is... Never mind. When are you going to open up your parasite? You go down into the Silver Fox and you're in this really strange club um, where basically you go there to be fleeced. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, that that uh, there's, there's a wonderful scene um, very early on and it's probably the best line in the whole film and it comes from Googie Withers who plays um, uh, Helen Noceros. She's the <laughs> wife of... Amazing name. She is the wife of the club owner. And if you girls want to work for my husband, you've got to start off on the right foot. There's this fantastic scene where she's instructing all the other hostesses. No stealing from the gentleman while you're in the club. There'll always be a waiter at your side. You always drink champagne. No wages, but generous commissions. Chocolates are very good. Oh, yes, chocolates. Fancy boxes. We sell at two pounds. And one of the hostesses says... Isn't two quid a bit steep for a box of chocolates? That seems to be an awful lot for a box of chocolates. And then Googie Withers delivers the best line of the movie, if not her career. She looks at the hostess and says... They're hand-dipped, dearie. <laughs> When the night's out, and, um, no, so this is their trade. And while this is going on, Philip Noceros, the husband, played by um, Francis L. Sullivan, large, 
purring figure, uh, and he's in this office which is which has got glass walls that allow him to look out onto the club. But at the same time, they look like bars, as if he's kind of imprisoned in this cage. So you know, he's at, he's at the centre of this world, but he's also completely imprisoned and trapped by it as well. And his tragedy, if you like, his his, his misfortune is that he is madly in love with. Um, Helen, uh, his wife, played by the amazing Googie Withers, uh, and she can't abide him. Yeah, she um, really, really she hates really, him. She really, really <laughs> hates him. They are perfectly mismatched, yeah. if you see it. I mean, they're both hustlers. They're both with an eye on the main chance. Um, there's a great quote, where, uh, which is actually from the, the, the Kirsch novel, and it's actually Philip speaking, where he says something like, uh, about the customers, you can skin them alive, but you have to peel them gently. Right. Um, and they're both obviously... Absolute predators, and they obviously met in clubland, didn't they? Oh, they, they know no other yeah. world. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely clear. There's a moment where they talk about, well, we could go away, you know, we could um, we could travel and get away from all this. And you think, no, they're never going to leave this. This is this is their environment. They love it here. You know, this is this this defines them. And actually, without giving away the end of the film or what happens to Harry, because he well, let, let's say he has misfortunes. It's not going to end well for him. No, and you know that pretty much from the start. Hmm. But it is uh, Phil Noceros, really, who puts the final knife in mm. because he he sees Harry and Helen having an intimate moment, a, a fairly innocent intimate moment, but he sees it all the same. And from that moment on, Harry's cards are marked, which mm. is um, it's quite disturbing how Phil decides to finish Harry. I mean, it's quite ruthless. Yeah, and he does it without ever leaving his his glass walled office. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the um, this I guess is the the, the the kind of vortex that the the Nosseroses, as, as a married couple, the Nosseri, the Nosseri. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, in a sense, Harry's just sucked into their to, into their drama without even realizing that what's going on around him and. You know, there's there's absolutely no way that the Philip Nosseros is going to let anyone near his wife. No. And there's no way he's letting his wife out of his his orbit, and you know he's prepared to be homicidal about yeah. it. And Helen and and Harry seem to have some history anyway. I there's mean, an implication. Yeah, there's an implication. There's two nice characters. Yes, they're part of the American community. Yeah, there's an American film. enclave on yeah. just off Dean Street. Yes. From the looks of it, I don't know. What's, I don't think that is anything to do with the plot. Although I think in the original novel, Harry isn't American; he's British, pretending to be American. Yeah, he's an East Endian pretending to be American. Oh, yeah, okay. he, he claims I think that he's a songwriter and he's had connections with. with he, he was from Chicago. He's got Hollywood and gangland connections. Oh, okay, but the the two other Americans apart from Harry Fabian mm. are. Mary, played by Jean Tierney, who gets second billing on the poster, which I think is generous. It's a, it's a bit shabby considering the performance that Googie Withers yeah. puts in. Who gets third billing, which is, you know, hmm. that's one rung too low for I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, no disrespect to Jean Tierney. No, but, who, but really. who is good. I think hmm. she is good. Hmm. And Adam. Played by Hugh Marlowe. And um, he loves her. Adam loves Mary. But he's such such a good person. He wants to help Harry because that will make Mary happy. It's almost ob- obscenely good compared to everybody else. They're, they're the only two altruistic characters in the whole film. It's interesting that they're both American. I, th- I think that's more to do with there, there was there was a definite trend at this time to feature American or Canadian actors and performers in British located or British made films in order to make them appeal. To, to a broader American market. Yeah. Um, but I think it's interesting, the, the actors that they've chosen. Uh, I mean, Gene Turney was, already had 
quite a reputation. And, and um, her costumes, uh, her gowns are, are designed by Oleg Cassini, who is on his way at this point to be a major American couturier. You know, he ends up designing for Jackie Kennedy. Um, so he's he's very much, you know, a, a, the, the coming modern wave of design. And then there's Hugh Muller, who's a really interesting actor. I mean, he's he just looks like uh, a sort of American good guy, quite handsome features. He's, he looks like he looks like a kind of hey honey I'm home exactly kind of guy exactly. Which, and his first scene when he's cooking pasta very badly, no, he's burning, burning it. pasta. Yeah, he's burning pasta. Yeah, uh, that's I think, like a sort of American sitcom scene. There is a kind of juxtaposition between. Jean Turney in her apartment uh, making breakfast and the kind of the, the image that she's quite domesticated even though she also works at the Silver Fox. Yeah, she's doing breakfast at night time, yeah. isn't she? Yeah. Um, and, then there's, and then there's Adam upstairs burning spaghetti, um, you know, sort of trying to look out for himself. It's almost like, the, you know, the, the equation has just been laid out here. These two belong together. Yeah. I think Adam's there is also as a kind of narrative counterweight to Harry's schemes because... While Adam is solid and dependable and rocks the most amazing range of knitted men's casual wear. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he just, he can wear a sweater vest. He doesn't have a nine to five job. He's not, he's not a steady character at all. Um, he's an artist. He's a designer. And he's good at it. And he does it really well. And he makes money. So he's almost like a kind of balance to Harry's mad schemes and, and ambitions. One last performance I want to talk about, because I think it's, one of his best I've seen him in is um, Herbert Lom as Christo, yes. the wrestling promoter, and and also obviously villain, massive villain. Mm. What do you think of him? I think it's an incredible performance, and it also introduces the one thing we haven't talked about because we've been talking about schemes and dreams and psychodramas, and and in fact a large part of this film takes place in the world of all in wrestling. Yeah, <laughs> which oh no, really, honestly, it's true. He is the main wrestling promoter in London, um, and he absolutely. Absolutely epitomizes this locked down, cold, predatory, apparently emotionless figure, but who clearly is very, very deeply attached to his father, who, loves this, his dad, yeah. who is this retired uh, Greco Roman wrestler, uh, Gregorius. And he clearly respects and loves his father. And it's when um, Harry kind of manages to turn Gregorius's head. Uh, in, and make him and persuades him that it's time to bring back good old proper wrestling. This is his ace in the hole. This is the this is the card he's got up his sleeve, as it were, because he knows that Christo can't touch him so long as Christo's father looks up to him. We've teased it a couple of times. Mm. The fact that just to be uh, specific, there were two different versions of the film made. The beginning scene is different. Not the, not the very, very first scene, but the first scene in which Harry arrives at Mary's house is a completely different scene in the American version. Yes. Also, the end, which we won't really talk about in detail, has some quite distinct differences. The majority of the rest of the film, as far as I understand it, is pretty much the same, but has a completely different score. Yes. I mean, you're absolutely right. The opening sequence where we see Harry being chased down side streets by some mysterious pursuer... Um, those scenes are the same, but the score is very, very different. The American version has a, a score by Franz Waxman, who's you know one of the one of the Hollywood greats, and he's really pouring on the noir. It's all urgency and 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 pace and velocity. You know, you can you can almost feel Widmark sort of you know hyperventilating as he's running. 
The score for the UK version by a guy called Benjamin Frankel, about whom I know very little, feels much lighter. So you're already in a different world. It's much darker, much more um, urgent to use that In the word. American version. The American version, yeah. yeah. Um, then we get to Mary's apartment. In the UK version... Mary is there. She's just finishing her breakfast. There, she's got washing hanging up on a line behind her. It's actually quite beautifully lit, and it all looks quite warm and inviting. And she's really pleased to see him. And he's been away for three days. She's been worried. Uh, what's he been up to? He's found this great get-rich-quick scheme uh, that involves some kind of fuel supplement for cars. And all he needs is some of the money from this nest egg she's been saving up to to buy into it, and their fortune is made. That's how the UK version begins or how their relationship begins in the UK version. The American version, it's very different. He, he he goes into the apartment, it's dark, she's not around, so he starts poking around and finds her purse and he's just about to search it for money when Mary comes out of the bathroom and basically catches him red-handed and he lies to her. He said he was looking for cigarettes and she knows he's lying because the cigarettes are out on the dressing table. Um, so it's a very, very different dynamic to their relationship. And it definitely alters the way we read everything else, however similar they may be to each other. Um, from then on and the rest of the From film. then on, because yeah. I think Harry's, we see a very, very different motives for Harry. I think in the the American version, the implication is the guy's no good from the beginning. Um, he's, you know, all he talks about is gambling and money, um, and you know, to hell with um, Noceros. I don't want, you know, I don't want to do any of this small time stuff anymore. You know, he's, he appears just as a petty thug, a petty yeah. uh, criminal, a shark, a shark, yeah, yeah, a, a tout. Yeah. Um, in the UK version, there is an implication of him being a dreamer. You know, he's got big dreams, he's got ambitions, um, you know, he really wants to make it. You know, whatever the get-rich scheme might be, he wants that. Um, and there's still a sense that Mary's got a, has created a home for him, uh, and it's up to him whether or not he embraces it. And, and I think that the message is very different between the two versions, because I think the, the UK version, which is, I understand it, it was nearer to the director's intention, right. is one in which Harry has dreams, but they're not necessarily bad dreams that he works hard but he works hard for all the wrong reasons um, and so he is it were sucked into this world of intimidation and violence and threats and blackmail and forgery and everything else whereas the American version the implication is he already is there. Yeah, so the, the move into wrestling seems the, the kind of thing that one of those sharks would do whereas yeah. in the UK version this guy, all he does really is try and get people to go into a club and he has these daft schemes like the, the fuel supplement thing. Mm. So the idea that he would then become a wrestling promoter mm. is absurd. Mm. So you do feel a bit of pity for him in a way because he's never, ever going to work out because Christo is clearly going to grind him up. Mm. Um, Noceros is clearly not going to let him get away with anything at all. He's, he's a shark as well. And I think in the, in the American version... I think possibly we don't have as much sympathy with him because he's another another shark swimming in the pool and he just doesn't he gets eaten, you know. He's just not a very good shark. Yeah. One of the strengths of the UK version because the Waxman score is is pretty amazing, um, very powerful. Um, there's there's a scene where he's on the run. He, he realizes that he's that Christo's put the word out that he wants Harry, um, and there's a beautiful montage actually just before that where you see one of the henchmen. 
uh, driving around the West End. Oh, that is fantastic! It's yeah, so beautiful. It, the, the cameras in the back of the car yeah. just goes from newspaper salesman to newspaper salesman, yeah. who obviously they're the people out on the streets who. It's all Piccadilly Circus, Coventry Street, Haymarket. It's really nice, really beautiful montage. And by that point, Harry's running. And and I think it's it's a kind of... From a historical point of view, there's a very, it's very significant that he ends up at the South Bank near Waterloo Bridge, and he's and he's running through the 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 reconstruction, the rebuilding that's going on there for what is because this is 1950. It's going to be the Festival of Britain site. Yeah. So basically, he's 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 running through the the, 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 the raw, yeah the raw foundations of what's going to be the yeah. National Theatre in the Royal Festival Hall. By right. the way, can we also note the prodigious physical feat of Harry being able to run? from Waterloo to Hammersmith. Um, yeah, he runs almost as fast and as far as normal wisdom. Yeah. He, he, he can, I mean, that guy can run, couldn't mm. run in a suit and a pair of slippery shoes mm. on cobbles. This is quite remarkable that he, that he manages to get all the way to Hammersmith Bridge. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so funny because he actually says, I can't run anymore. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's daylight by the time he gets there. Yeah, yeah, the, the sun is coming up yeah. at this point. At this point in history, of film history, it's branching out to so many different types of film. What other genres can you see? One of the most immediate ones is is in the casting, that you've got people like Sullivan and Hayter playing Figler, the, the, the king of the beggars, who, if they haven't already, are already very closely associated with Dickens' adaptations. They, I mean, they both look Dickensian even in this film. So I think there's certainly the, the portrayal of the, the small-time criminal, the hustler, um, the, the underclass, the, the underclass. Yeah. It, it's very, it's v- very much a, a kind of Dickens-type film in that sense. I mean, particularly Figler and the forger who always asks his own question and then answers it for himself. Yeah. Yes, um, <laughs> that yeah. And, uh, and there's also there's something quite Brechtian about Figler and his and his army of beggars. You know, he says, oh, "I can, you know, I can." Set you up with a, set you up with some artificial limbs, glass eyes. You know, you can make a good living yeah, out of this. Opera. Um, so there's that, and I think there's also the beginnings of a much more socially, socially minded drama or a socially minded take on the noir thriller uh, of this point. And I think it definitely comes out in the UK version um, with this idea of Harry as someone who just has dreams. You know, someone who's been knocked down who's been belittled by society. At one point he talks about, you know, his father and the welfare state um, sort of being dismissive of him, not giving him a chance. Um, it's almost like an ealing theme, though. It's almost an ealing, but also, um, in, it, it, this is 1950, 1949, the breakout success on Broadway is Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller. And th- there's something of the Willie Loman dreamer about um, Harry, Mm. Um, he's got the same kind of quality. And I think the moment when Adam, in his beautiful Hugh Marlowe American voice, um, says profoundly of, um, of Harry right, at the, right near the beginning of the film, he's an artist without an art. Uh, and I think later when, when uh, Gene Turney as, as Mary says to him, you know, you've worked harder than 10 men, but it was for the wrong things, the wrong things. I mean, I could just hear characters in Miller's drama saying that about Willie Loman, this 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 dreaming salesman who's who's kind of lost everything on the idea of being well liked and popular and successful. Ken Holling's most recent book, Inferno, launched a few days ago and is about underground films, exploitation movies and American trash culture in the nineteen sixties. You could buy a copy on Amazon, but wouldn't you feel better about yourself if you supported an independent publisher by buying it directly from them? 
just go to strangeattractor.co.uk forward slash shop spelt s-h-o-p-p-e forward slash inferno and you can find out about ken's other work at kenhollings.blogspot.com and many thanks to ken for coming on the show and thanks again to murder mile mike mike is the creator of the highly acclaimed murder mile podcast which covers hundreds of unsolved untold and long forgotten murders in london's west end he also runs murder mile walks a five-star walking tour of soho's most infamous murders you can find details about all of these at his website murdermiletours.com and if you'd like to see him live on stage he's taking part in a fever talk at dingwalls in camden on tuesday march 24th called secrets of serial killers details about this and all of the information i've just been firing at you can be found in this episode's show notes at sohobitespodcast.com and of course if you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in the show or if you'd like to suggest a Soho film for us to talk about, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're on at Bytes Soho, or you can email SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. In the next episode, I get to climb the clock tower of St. Anne's Church on Dean Street, which is where I spoke to author and historian Rob Baker about Brilliant Chang and the post-World War I moral panic around young women taking drugs. And because when you're on drugs, it's difficult to come off them, the film chat is about Cocaine, the 1922 silent directed by Graham Cutts. Michelle Facey, a silent film programmer for the Cinema Museum, makes a return visit to Soho Bites to talk about that. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jingen Young. You can follow Jingen and her new research project on Twitter on at Cities in Cinema. Jingan's new play, Life and Death of a Journalist, is on at the Vault Festival in Waterloo until March 1st. More details about this are, of course, on the show notes for this episode at the usual place, SohoBitesPodcast.com. That's it from me for now. See you next time. <laughs>